When you think of the life of David, when you hear, we're going to talk about David, what do you think of straight away? Some people would think of Goliath. Some people would think of Bathsheba, maybe. Maybe Saul chasing him. Maybe closeness, friendship with Jonathan or even his own son, the trauma of a father and a son being separated and the stress that brought into his life. Maybe David the the psalmist and all that he sang. Well, we're going to read about an incredible story this morning and I want to read to you another verse that will give us God's perspective, what, Dave, what God thought about David. And it's a remarkable insight. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll have to read from the screen because I don't have NIV with me. <coughs> David again uh, brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all of his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Thank you. That are on the ark. Uh, they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abin Adam, which was on a hill. Other and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding a new cart with the Ark of God on it and Ahio was walking out in front of it. They I can read quick but not that quick. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, whatever that is, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Azza reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Azza because of his irreverent act and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Azza. And to this day that place is called Perez Azza. David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of God ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city, uh, in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom, a Giddite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Giddite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went down and he brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, <clears throat> danced before the Lord with all of his might, while the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of God with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. <clears throat> As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, I'm not sure how to say her name, that's what I'm going to use, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of God, um, of the Lord, and set it in the place inside the tent that David had prepared, pitched for it, prepared for it, and David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. 
after he'd finished sacrificing all of the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, <coughs> he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Great joy. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, finger wagging. Now the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to her, (coughs) David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father and anyone from your house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. By these slave girls that you have spoken of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's God's word to us. It's an interesting story. And the more you think about it, <coughs> it'll become clearer. But there are some dis- thanks, Trace. There are some disturbing things in it. Here is David, I assume, with great enthusiasm, wanting to bring the Ark of God. I guess we need to talk about that uh, into the very centre of a new kingdom, and it doesn't work, and it upsets him. And that's, from a human perspective, fully understandable. <coughs> Um, but there have been some things that he had omitted to do uh, which is where God showed up and got his attention and brings correction to him. Well, just for the beginning to set the bookends to this talk this morning when we think of David we may think of all those things I said before when God remembered David in the book of Acts chapter 13 verse 22 Paul is speaking to a group of people and he says these words that God raised up David to be king concerning whom he had said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Wow. That's a pretty strong epitaph, isn't it? I have found David to be a man after my own heart, God's perspective, and who will do all my will. I have found David to be a willing compliant, walking in tune with me. If I look to the left or the right, he looks the same way. If I say this is important, he thinks it's important. If I say don't do this, he doesn't do it. He's a man after my own heart. That's God's perspective on him. And before we go anywhere else this morning, that ought to be likewise our ambition. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Paul says, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. What's your ambition? We make it our ambition to be pleasing to him every day. At the end of the day, evaluate. Lord, if I live this day pleasing you, confess the things that I've done wrong, confess the things I didn't get done that I should have been doing. I want to please you. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. As somebody has very correctly said, the life of faith is little more than a series of falls and restorations, 
missteps and corrections, displaying on the one hand the sad weakness of people, humankind, and on the other hand the grace and the patience of God. Following Jesus, the life of faith, is little more than day by day trying to live in such a way as to please him. Sometimes we will fall but be restored. Sometimes we will get off track, misstep, but be corrected. That's what the Christian life is like. It's not onward and upward and all plain sailing. It's ups and downs, twists and turns. <clears throat> but through it all, focused on the end goal, to be pleasing to him. And I think that is reflected in this story and is one of the major applications of it for us this morning. The story falls into three parts. First part, David attempts to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. I better talk about the ark. Uh, and he fails in the process. He does something wrong. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> uh, he then tries a second time and he succeeds. We'll talk about that. And then the third part, of course, is uh, getting home and uh, Mrs. David not being happy with him when he gets home. McCall. Well, just a little bit of background and very quickly about the ark, a little bit of history about the ark to help this story make full sense for us. God's word is very specific. There are chapters devoted to this, the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, where you'll have detailed instructions about how to build the ark, the size of the ark. The ark is about the size, not quite as big as our communion table over there. It's over a metre, about 1.2 metres, 1.15 metres exactly long, and it's 0.68 uh, metres high and deep. So it's a box made of acacia wood and it's covered with pure gold. Would have been heavy. And then on top of the box there is this very special lid. It was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, which is where God's presence would be manifested, there are two angels, moulded angels in gold, pure gold who are kneeling and looking down on the face, the lid of the ark. And their wings are extended and I'm not sure if touching or almost touching. That's the image you have. And so God not only gave instructions how to build it, how to cover it, he gave instructions how to move it. Part of the building process was that they put four ringlets on the base of the Ark of the Covenant. And there were long poles, again, all covered in gold. And the long poles were to be threaded through these two ringlets on this side and those two ringlets on this side. And this particular family, from the tribe of Levi, it was the the family of the Kohath. And they and they only were to be the carriers. And at designated times they would come in, they would pick up the ark and they would put it on their shoulders and that's how God wanted it carried. It would have been top heavy. It would have taken some effort. And the book of Numbers tells us specifically when you do have to move and transport the ark, they're to take this particular material and they are to cover it. There was lots of different... The details are there in the book of Numbers. A pretty thick sort of blanket. So it's to be covered and hidden from public view and to be transported very carefully. The ark contained three things. Here's a Bible knowledge test for you. What was in the ark? Some of you will know. Number one, the two stone tablets to where God wrote himself with his own finger of the Ten Commandments, that was in the ark. What else was in the ark? Aaron's rod that he threw on the ground and um, um, with the other rods, his had budded overnight. So Aaron's rod that budded, the rod that he had that he used to walk with and use like Moses' rod, but it wasn't his, it was Aaron's rod that was in the ark, so that was in there. 
not sure how it got in there because if it's only a box this big it must have been one of those special folding ones you know that you yeah. there's something else in the ark too somebody said it the manna a jar of manna a gold jar of the manna that the Israelites had read for read had eaten for 40 years so that was the contents of the ark the ark was uh, the first to lead Israel, led them round in the wilderness. It was the ark that led them to the Jordan River where the priests put their foot in. The Jordan River dried up and they went across the, on dry land into the promised land. It's the ark that went around the city of Jericho and the walls fell down. The ark of God demonstrated for them the visible presence of God. It was centre of their worship. Everything is going fine. The ark is in the, in the tabernacle uh, for decades, perhaps centuries during the time of Saul, just before Saul, in the time of Eli the Philistines uh, had attacked Israel and for some strange reason the Israelites decided that they would take the Ark of God out of the tabernacle and they would take it to the front line I guess they were symbolically saying, you know, motivating their troops of bringing the presence of God with them into the camp sad story, 1 Samuel chapter 4 is they got beaten and the Philistines took the Ark, remember this story? You can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5 and 6. And the ark then goes into the Philistines and interesting things happen there where God judges and demonstrates his obvious power. And eventually the Philistines want to get rid of it because they're getting sick and they put it on a cart, a new cart, with two oxen pulling it. And they send it back to, the house, to Israel and they watch it and there's a fork in the road and if it goes to the left then they'll know it was just a fluke. If it goes to the right then they'll know that this was God who was judging them. So the uh, oxen by themselves head off and in the providence of God head to the right and now the Philistines know that there is a living God and he is the one who has been judging them and so on. And the ark goes to a place uh, called Cariath Jerem, way down the south of Israel. And there it stays for a little while and for some strange reason over time, 70 blokes out of that little city thought, wonder what's in the ark? So they went and had a look. God struck them dead because Numbers chapter 4 instructs very clearly no one is to touch the ark the Levites weren't allowed to touch it so they let alone anybody else touching it so the guys of Cariah's Jerem were a bit upset about that so they said we don't want it here so they sent it off to some other place the house of Abinadab where it stayed Saul becomes king he doesn't do anything about it the ark stays in the house of Abinadab and him for, I'm not sure of the years, but it's at least 50 years and it could be longer. 55, 60 years, something like that. Which means, when you do the timeline, David is 30 years of age when he becomes king. For his entire life, he has never experienced the Day of Atonement never had that experience that God very clearly and particularly outlaid in the law of Moses of what Israel was to do in terms of their religious festival. They could do some of the other sacrifices as he does in this chapter but they could not go in and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with the Day of Atonement. They'd never experienced it. Israel's worship was flatlining, it was in decline and in fact Chronicles tells us that Saul had nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant throughout all of his life all his period and so it's not surprising we read about his daughter in this chapter and she has a similar attitude to, to dad 
So that's a little bit of the background. Um, that was the ark. So it's way down south. Now David is the king. And if you flip over, I mean we're looking at 2 Samuel and this is something I don't like to do normally, but <clears throat> if you read 1 Chronicles as well as this chapter in 2 Samuel, you'll get a lot more detail in Chronicles. Chronicles chapter 13, 15 and 16 talk about this one chapter, this one story. gives you a whole lot more. So if you go to chapter 13 of 1 Chronicles, we won't, but you can write it down or you can look it up. It actually says that David sent messengers up and down the land of Israel saying, do you think it's a good idea that we go get the Ark of the Covenant? He consulted the nation. He consulted far and wide. And everybody said, good idea. They had a plan. And then our book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, simply says, so David again assembled all of the best men in Israel, 30,000 in number. It had been planned, it had been organised, all the advertising had gone out and had worked, all the young adults had turned up, TV cameras were there, and they travelled south, down to this place where they're going to get it from, Bala in Judah to bring up the Ark of God. That was their mission. They went, they were excited. They go to the house of Abin Adam. We aren't given any details. How did they get the Ark out of the house and onto the cart? Were the poles still there? Not told. Anyway, they do. It says they put the Ark on a brand new cart. Where did they get that idea from? Philistines. That's what they had done. So they're copying what the unbelieving world had done. And in fact, the Philistines had consulted their diviners to see what they should do. They didn't have a clue. And God let them get away with it. But God expects different things from his people because God has given us his word. Nonetheless, David does this. He takes the ark, puts it on um, the calf, and there are two brothers, two sons. Whether they are Abin Adib, whether he's still alive or whether he has passed away, Um, I mean a lot of years have passed at least 50 and as I said maybe more and so at least his two sons are surviving Uzzah sounds like Wazzah or Gazzah not an Aussie Uzzah sounds like the Hebrew word still has to play on their words and the brother so Uzzah is on the cart, he's driving the oxen and Ahio, the other brother, he's out front leading the way. These guys grew up with the ark. The ark was this gold box in their house and nobody else had seen it, touched it, gone near it. It was their family heirloom, almost. And it had become almost their precious to them. So they're in charge, driving the cart, walking in front of the cart, um, and something is seriously wrong, but nobody picks up on it just yet. God, uh, David is desirous of God's presence, and so now they're celebrating and playing all these musical instruments, and everything is going well for a time. Now there's something to observe. This is our experience, isn't it? Sometimes when we are disobeying God, when we are doing the wrong thing, we get away with it for a while. It seems to go well for a while, even though it's wrong. We know it's wrong because the Bible tells us so and because we understand the story as it's going to be unfolded. 
So we need to be careful that just because things are going well, that's not necessarily an indication that we are walking in full obedience. Some other criteria has to be used to evaluate that for us. Not just simply things are going well by itself. And it's like God was waiting deliberately until this happened. Verse 6, when they arrived at the threshing floor, when they arrived at this spot, a threshing floor is where you separated the wheat from the chaff. And at the threshing floor was where God was going to separate the chaff of their disobedience from the good motivations, the wheat of their heart, if you like. They really were motivated, wanting to do the right thing for God, but doing it in a totally wrong way and doing it in disobedience. Perhaps ignorant disobedience, but not excusable disobedience, as we will see in a moment. So God certainly turned up, but not in the way that David had expected. In fact, just as an aside, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, John chapter 14, verse 21, that if we love him, we will obey him, and that if we obey him, if we do the things that he's instructing us to do, then our heavenly Father will love us, and we, the Father and the Son, will manifest his presence to us. The manifestation of the presence of God is linked with obedience to the commands of God. They're not separated. So God turns up, but it's judgment. Was this simply a reflex action, reflex action by other? And if it was, is that a bit harsh of God? <clears throat> well, when... How do we react when we're doing something, we're doing our best for God, but everything goes pear-shaped? What do you do? Well, you can certainly question why, and that's not a bad thing. Why, Lord? You can become confused, that's normal. You can even start to question yourself, evaluating, did I do it right, did I do it right, what's going on? But we should not blame God, which is what David does here. That's God's fault. That was a bit tough. But Uzzah had made certain errors, critical errors, in his own thinking. Answer these questions. Does it matter who carried the ark? Yes. Does it matter how the ark was carried? Yes. Um, would it matter if the ark fell off? Can God take care of his own ark? Well, depending on how you answer them, I think Uzzah answered them in terms of no, it doesn't matter how you carry it. No, it doesn't matter all these things and I need to give God a hand. If it was just a reflex action, then it was governed by and not cautioned by correct thinking given by the word of God. That's why the Lord was furious with him. And whenever anything goes wrong in our life, we ought to fully accept, one, he is a righteous, loving God. And if something has gone wrong, then he, the sovereign one, has a purpose in it or he's going to do something with it, but he is not to be blamed for it. That's an inappropriate, incorrect response to a holy, sovereign God who does everything right, never does anything wrong. It may look wrong to us, but that's because our perception is wrong. So too in our own lives. Well, David was angry because I guess his pride was wounded or his plan failed or whatever it was. He judges God, he blames God, he's angry at God, he's peeved off. And who is to blame? David would have said, God. But there's a serious omission. 
You read 1 Chronicles 13, like I said before, David consulted up the land, down the land, east and west. He consulted everybody, but he didn't consult God. That's the omission. You go back to chapter 5, and twice at the end of the chapter, verse 19 and verse 23, you have the Philistines coming, and so David asked the Lord, should I march up against them? Should I? What do you want me to do? does it in chapter 2. Should I go into the towns of Judah? Yes, you should. Which town? Go to Hebron. He's asking God. He's inquiring of God. We spoke about that last week. That's one of the strong things he did. But he doesn't do it here. It's interesting. It's an omission. And because it's an omission, he stumbles. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it's worth reading, verses 14 to 20, that paragraph that when a king is appointed, there are very specific things he is to do and some things he is not to do. He is not to amass horses. He is not to multiply his wives. He is to copy the word of God. He is to read it every day and he is to obey it. As the king, he is to have his own copy of the scriptures and he is to read it so that he can obey it. David hadn't done that. That's omitted. He hadn't been obedient. And so he's a bit confused, he's certainly a bit scared, he's afraid and that's what happens. Fear always kicks in when faith is not being exercised, when we are not walking in faith, following what God has outlined for us. David says, how am I now going to get the ark up? I don't want to do this anymore, people are dying. Um, So it's almost providential. Put it in that house, the house of Obed-Edom. When you read Chronicles, you'll find out that he is a a Levite who happens to be exactly from the family whom God had said, that is the Kohath family. That's the family who were the carriers of the ark. Remarkable, isn't it? Put the ark in his house. I bet you Obed-Edom went, oh, I don't want it. But he gets it. And then God blesses him and his house and everything he does for three months. That's worth pausing and thinking about. Time is going, so I have to rush. Um... The blessings of God come when we are obedient to him, when God is in our midst. It's obvious people will know why and they will talk about it to others. There's lots of scriptures that I'll jump over. So too, when Christ is in our life and in our homes, just like the ark, the presence of God was in Obed-Edom's house, the presence of the Lord Jesus, God himself in us and in our families ought to bring with it the blessing of God, provided we are being fair income, real, sincere, obedient. We ought to, theme for this year, pause and pray as family. We ought to take those emails from Liana and ask the kids the questions. What did you learn? What does it mean? Probe them and you'll learn through the process as well. Well, Obed Edom certainly had the presence of God with him and the blessing of God. Then three months later, David gets told, the ark is not the problem. The ark is not what killed Uzzah. It was disobedience. The ark in Obed-Edom brings blessing. So David is rejoicing. He's read the scriptures. 1 Chronicles 15 will tell you that. He then goes back down and he gathers it up with joy. And he brings it up. He gets the right family. They're carrying it. That's not on a cart. They're now carrying it the way they should. They're all dressed and they've got their music and they're all singing and he's dancing again along with others, not by himself. And as they go, they take six steps. One, two, three, four, five, and they stop. And then David offers a sacrifice. I guess it's like a test run. Is this really going to be okay? 
Because God is a God who is to be respected. God is a God who is awesome. You can't play with the Almighty, as he's already demonstrated. So now David's wanting to make sure on the sacrifices he offers is one, a burnt offering for their sin. Lord, cleanse us, forgive us. And then a fellowship offering, which is to do with we desire your presence, we desire communion with you. That's the sacrifice. And then they proceed amidst a great joy, great rejoicing. David's wearing an ephod. I always thought they were underpants. It's not. An ephod is like a vest or like an apron. It's very common, linen. Not fancy, it's very plain. That's the point. He took off his royal robes. He's no longer dressed as the king of Israel. He is now dressed like, as the priests are dressed in an ephod, as the people are dressed in very common linen. He has lowered himself to the level of the commoners. And David is demonstrating unashamedly that while he is the appointed king of Israel, there is a real king in heaven. God himself is our king. Let's humble ourselves before him. Let's worship him. Let's acknowledge his presence. That's what he's doing. And he does so unashamedly, dancing and jumping and leaping. And it's not just him. There's lots of people doing it. Just like at a sporting event, when somebody scores a touchdown try or hits a six or whatever sporting event you're at, everybody, yay, don't we? You jump up, don't you? That's quite acceptable. So too in the church, that's acceptable. Weird, but acceptable. If that's your, there are two mistakes we make in our Christian worship. One is we make emotional centre. And if you're not emotional, then you're not worshipping. Well, that's wrong. The other mistake is the flip side of that is where we suppress it. We hold it down to control it. That's equally wrong. Our emotions are to be not repressed, but expressed sincerely, openly. We would give each other some freedom and latitude and encourage you to express what you are feeling. Not to manipulate, not to force or any of that stuff, but to be aware of those two extremes and errors. So here is David, unashamedly, in this very exciting occasion, dancing and leaping and having a wonderful time, but not everybody's happy. When he gets to the city of Jerusalem, he looks up and there is Michal, his wife, one of his wives, looking down, and she despises him in her heart. It's interesting. Why isn't she down in the street with him? Why is she called the daughter of Saul and not the queen or the wife of David. It's interesting. The author is saying to us that here is McCall who is acting just like her dad, Saul. He didn't have anything to do with the ark. He wasn't interested in the worship of God. She was indifferent to it. What she loved was David the warrior, David the giant slayer, David the man that all the women admire, the one they sang songs about. She loved the celebrity status. That's what she loved. She was proud and she wanted to be elevated. That's why she is so critical of David. Hasn't the king of Israel distinguished himself today? How glorious you were. You're the king, dressed like a commoner. And not just dressed like a commoner, you're behaving like them. You're the king. Behave like the king. Exalt the office and me with that. That's what she means. That's her heart. She's estranged from God. She hasn't got a heart for God and here she is in the very royal palace. Then David gives a very succinct answer. God chose me out of his grace. God appointed me to be king over 
his people. He has a little jab at her. God appointed me to be king over his people, not your dad, none of your family. He has a slight aside at her. And then he says, if God has done this for me, then I will take my place rightly before him. I will play my part. I will humble myself before this sovereign king. And then in his own time, he will exalt me. Verse 23 concludes, Macaul's son Saul's daughter had no children to the day she died. That could mean one of two things. Number one, did God do that? The text doesn't say that, but I'm quite sure many people would have assumed that. Or it may mean, secondly, it means that David never had intimate relations with her anymore after that. So she could never become pregnant. They were estranged. And certainly in her culture at that time, for a woman not to have a child was considered to be um, a curse, a great derogatory existence. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, several things, just quickly. We need to humble ourselves before God like David does. He eventually gets it exactly right. Not to exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves before God and before others. To know our place in God, who we are. David knew exactly who he was and he knew his place before God and we likewise. We are ambassadors of the king, we are citizens of another world and we ought to behave and live as such, conducting ourselves in this world, understanding fully who we are. Associated with that, a word of correction for us. Our attitude is reflected when we come to the assembly, the public assembly of God's people. And for some of you, you come habitually late serial offenders I'm not talking to the ones who you may turn up late every now and again because something happens I'm not talking about that because life happens um, I'm not talking or accepting either the excuse but we have kids down in kids church and we have to take kids down and we're always late coming back we'll come earlier get the kids down there earlier model for them that you need to be on time why? well because out of respect for the great king we come to honour him to do so together to the best of our ability let's lift our game and start services on time and be on time it's not about us it's about him and we need to model that for each other number three God blesses particular obedience to his instructions does he when David omits it and is not obedient to what God had specifically said to do judgment when he repents and he lifts his game, he does exactly what God says a second time, blessing. There is a link between obedience and blessing. Don't mishear me and don't twist my words to say that I am saying that if you are fully obedient to God, you'll be healthy, wealthy and wise. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you'll be blessed. You'll have a sense of the presence of God and his smile on your face. So the question for us this morning is, and for me, is my obedience up to date? Am I doing everything that God has commanded me and required of me to do? Am I being obedient in all of the particulars? And if not, time to repent, time to change, time to put God back in his place and us in our place before him and obedient to him. David is clearly zealous, pragmatic, but not according to knowledge. And this passage reminds me that God expects us especially leaders, but he expects all of his people to be people who know his word, who read it, know it, obey it, who live it out. Because David had neglected to do that on this particular occasion, that's why the problems came. So too for us. 
often I bet you weekend links, bad things happening to us or God's discipline coming upon us. And we are not to despise the discipline of the Lord. David nearly did in this chapter when he got angry at God. He was despising God's discipline. Correction. Um, So too, we need to be people of the book. You need a plan. You need to follow the plan. Otherwise you're just simply planning to fail. If you don't have a plan, then let me encourage you, grab one of our study books for what we're doing to Samuel and just read the chapters we're studying each week. Follow that through until we get to the end of this series and then follow the next one. That's a plan. Let's see if we can do better. And then finally, just this and then I'm going to pray. <clears throat> David humbles himself and God exalts him, just like Jesus. David is a picture of the Lord Jesus who came into our world, who humbled himself, rejected by people, but who was fully obedient to God's will and purposes. And then through his death, resurrection, he is exalted. He reigns on high. He has left us that example. We are to humble ourselves. People saw him as ordinary, as common as a nobody, but he wasn't. So it doesn't matter how people see us, we are ambassadors of the king and citizens of another world. Let's live humbly before him, honestly before people, and let him exalt us. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness, your goodness in giving us your word, your instructions. And we're sorry, Lord, for not reading it, studying it as best we can, not obeying it as much as we should. Can you help us, please, to have a plan that works where we can get into your word, read it, know it, but most of all, live it out to be doing it. Father, we ask likewise that you will help us to um, teach and experience your presence in our families that the next generation might come to know you, the living God, through our testimony, through our witness. Lord, help us to be a people who humble ourselves, who are obedient to you, and a people who will be um, unashamed of you. Lord, your will be done in each of our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join us as we sing our final song, Yesterday, Today and Forever.